Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. And we're done with the election, so we're going to go over everything you should know from results to the fact that John Ralston is always right. <laughs> well, he's he's almost always right. Uh, and to defend his position, we are joined by our CEO here at the Nevada Independent, John Ralston. How's it going? Hi, guys. Welcome to the show, John. This is a little bit of a different format for listeners. Normally, we kind of jump into segments. Um, this is going to be a big election results overview. Um, we might have another fun little segment here at the end, but we're mostly going to be talking about what happened this election. And, and to start off, John, can you kind of just go over the major races and who won? The governor's race was won very narrowly by Joe Lombardo, the sheriff, who gave his victory speech this week. And Catherine Cortez Masto in the last race that was called by us and nationally is going to win by about a point over Adam Laxalt. We should tell people, I guess, that there's still some outstanding votes. We're not exactly sure of the number because there are ballots, mail ballots still being cured, which means signatures are being fixed, et cetera. And there's some provisional ballots, but they're not, it's not going to, it's unlikely to change the results in, in any races, except perhaps for some lower ticket races for like county commission and maybe a couple legislative races, but it seems unlikely. So after saying all that, Joey, I, I, I think the two marquee races were split, which was a good result, probably more for the Democrats than for the Republicans, considering what happened down the ticket when the Republicans were only able to take the controller and lieutenant governor's race and the other statewide races. And it could be argued that those are the two most insignificant constitutional offices to have won and that winning AG and secretary of state and treasurer was pretty significant for the Democrats, considering all the headwinds that they were going against. And they swept the House races, which, you know, they were all under siege. The Republicans spent a ton of money to beat all those incumbents. I actually thought Susie Lee was going to lose, as did almost everybody I talked to, by the way, on both sides of the aisle. That was a surprise, but that's the basic scorecard. Hey, Joey here from the future, uh, interjecting for a minute to just say that between the conversation between Jacob, John, and I, I'm going to interject and drop in a few interviews with voters and poll workers that video producer Tim Leonard and I did on election day. So you'll hear some punditry from John and Jacob, and then I'll be interjecting from time to time to ask them questions and to give you an on-the-ground perspective from different voters and election workers on the day of the election here in Reno. And to start off, we're going to hear from Sandy Haying, a 77-year-old home healthcare worker who is voting at Kate Smith Elementary School in Sparks. I talked to her in the morning when voting was just getting underway and a light snow had started. It was very smooth. I was disappointed there weren't more people in there. I was hoping for a bigger turnout, but it's a long day. Yeah. Maybe they'll get here. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's early in the morning. It's cold today too, right? Yeah. Well, it is, but that this is important. Yeah. I think it's a lot due to the weather that maybe they'll turn out later and a lot due to the fact that some of them just didn't want to come to the polls or afraid. Mm -hmm. So they probably either voted early or mailed it in. I'm hoping that's the case. Why, why Democrat? Is it how you've always voted or? Well, yeah, pretty much, but mostly because of the issues at stake mm -hmm. and because of what we went through with the Trump relegation of all the lies and cutting our rights and lying to us about COVID and everything else. Yeah. I just don't trust them. And they're, they're for the big money, not the regular people that they're supposed to be representing. And to me, that's important. 
And here you'll hear Carolyn Burney, an election worker who was the manager of the Sparks Library voting location. I've worked the uh, election for a while, and I decided it was time that I stepped up a little bit, and they needed help, so I was willing to do it. Did you? Do you feel like it was, it's a hard job? Do you feel like a lot of responsibility, or you know? Well, it... there's a lot of responsibility with it. I could tell you that. <laughs> no, it's not that hard. It. It's getting along with people and things like that, which is good. Good, good. Yeah. And so everyone's been pretty happy. This is a huge location. Yeah. They seem to be. They seem to be. They kind of have to wait out in the cold right now. But uh, other than that, we seem to be moving them through pretty fast. The Democrats, you know, have created a supermajority in the assembly in a midterm that everyone thought was going to be a red wave. So let me start with this, John. Does gerrymandering work? Yeah, apparently it does, right? It, 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 not only does gerrymandering work, meaning it makes for listeners, it makes it very difficult for incumbents to be beaten by the other party because they, they essentially, and this is what upsets people about gerrymandering, they choose their voters, right? They, they they draw the maps the way they want them drawn as opposed to what makes the most logical sense. That's why so many, for years, House incumbents were, were, were reelected. It was in the mid to high 90s at one point until they started getting beaten in primaries and that that went down a little bit. But Jacob's right. I mean, the, the conventional wisdom, again, was that the Republicans were, had a chance to pick up a seat in, in the uh, Senate, and they were going to pick up a few seats in, in the Assembly to make sure there wasn't they weren't in a super minority again. And so the fact that that occurred is not just a tribute to gerrymandering, but to the Democratic organization in this state and what they were able to do in, in the face of, of Joe Biden's numbers being so low, gas prices being so high, it's really, I mean, except for the governor's race, and by the way, I don't think you should minimize that, it's the most important office in the state, but except for the governor's race, this race, this cycle was a disaster for the Republicans in this state. Now we're going to hear from some of those Republican voters. First is Rosemary Donovan, an 89-year-old, who is voting at Hidden Valley Elementary School. How was the process? Very excited. Yeah. Very, very, very excited. Yeah. I'd like to vote on election day. Just, it just makes me happy. I'm yeah. Republican and voted Republican. Yeah. What issue is the most important to you? Like, what do you care about the most? I think the cost of food and the way things are going, especially terrible um, people getting hurt. It just breaks my heart. And I fear for myself. By people getting hurt, you mean like... Crime, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's a big thing for me. The food, and I think that's it. And here is Marianne Decker, a voter I talked to outside the Sparks Library. That went very, very smooth, very easy. I would encourage anybody to come out and do it. Do you want to talk about how you voted today? Oh, I'm Republican. (laughs) So you just voted Republican mostly? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. How are you feeling about it generally? Well, we've got to have a change. Yeah. This is ridiculous. I mean, I would have voted, you know, Democrat if if things were better. But the border and everything that's going on, the gas prices, it's just ridiculous. Sure. There's so many people that are struggling. Yeah. So it's not a good economy. So that was your biggest issue is the economy? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The economy is a big one. And, you know, the abortion, I'm sure, yeah. anti-abortion. So we've got to all have a voice. Mm-hmm. We have to have a voice and speak out. Otherwise, we just can't sit back and complain. 
Does this solidify Nevada as a blue state? You know, we went blue in 2020. In 2018, we were kind of thinking about it. I feel like it's been purple for a while and people were saying there's going to be a red wave. And here in Nevada, it, it didn't really happen that way. So it, for the future, is this looking like we might be a, a more democratically controlled state for a while? I can answer that, Joey. No. This was obviously supposed to be a down year for Democrats. And I think if you look at the numbers, it was in a lot of ways, right? Like the Democratic incumbent governor still lost in a year when other Democratic incumbents increased their margins. You look at Michigan, you look at Colorado, those governors are winning by 20 points that Sisolak lost, I think is indicative in Nevada of the strength of the Republican Party. Look, you have people who are election deniers and fringe candidates get more than 450,000 thousand votes and come close to holding important constitutional offices. And that's pretty that's pretty scary and incredible and shows what the Democrats were up against. Joe Lombardo beat Steve Sisolak for a variety of reasons. But yeah, Steve Sisolak, imagine how he's feeling being the only Democratic incumbent to lose in, in, in the country. And listen, there are a lot of different reasons for that. But COVID crushed this economy disproportionately than any other economy. He wore that. He wore the terrible unemployment system that resulted in people not getting their checks for weeks or months or not getting them at all. And then Lombardo exploited that the sons of one of his major donors and friends got this COVID testing contract that turned out to be a disaster. You put all that together and still Steve Zizelak almost got reelected. A very smart Republican said to me, the truth about Joe Lombardo's win is if you're a Republican candidate in this state for a major office, you have to run a nearly flawless campaign to run because you're running against the Democratic machine and all the institutional advantages that they have. Now we're going to hear from Ann Rios, a registered nurse who I talked to at the Reno Town Mall. We've always voted in person, but this year we're like, let's go ahead and just drop it off. I mean, I think it makes the process a little easier, especially when the lines are. Do you, do you want to talk about how you voted or? Democrat. Yeah, Democrat. <laughs> yes, I'm do, Democratic. Was there any um, candidates really stood out to you? I think Sisolak's done um, very well in the last couple of years that he's been um, governor. And I think Cortez as well, like, Especially, I think, from a viewpoint that I was telling my daughter that, you know, we want to protect women's rights. So I think that's why Cortez is our option there. So is that a big a big issue for you guys this, yeah. this election? Yes, definitely. Do you feel like it's a bonding experience kind of coming to vote together? We all, I've never, we've not ever not voted. We come from, a, so my dad is immigrated, you know, became a U.S. citizen, and he's big on voting. So it's something that it's a must in our household. And here is Dan Grayson, a 43-year-old airline employee who brought his kids with him to vote. Well, I'm happy to get to vote. I'm still upset that we're doing mail-in ballots, but yeah. still needs to be an ID required. Still need to be voting in person. Yeah. Mail-in ballots are a complete unethical waste, and you're not even required to surrender them. There's how many ballots that are being cast by people that are, they still have their ballot to do with whatever they want. So uh, do you want to talk about how you voted today? or Very conservative. And then you brought your kids today. That's pretty cool. Do you feel like they're getting to see how voting yeah, is happening? how it works. Yeah. Did you guys, how did you guys feel about seeing your dad vote? Are you excited? Is it, are you kind of just like, oh, it's nice to have the day off of school? Or? Nice to have the day off of school. Yeah. I like your I voted stickers <laughs> on your forehead. Thanks. So obviously there was a lot of split ticketing, right? What does that look like for the rest of the state? 
We'll, we'll have to see what the data says. We'll know more in a couple of weeks. But the big thing, I think, is that there's a difference between, say, Lombardo and Laxalt, right? These are two very different Republican candidates. And both Republican candidates were running sort of in a Republican environment that was still defined by Trump. And when Trump gave his endorsement to Lombardo and to Laxalt, one of those candidates more readily embraced it than the other. It, it was such a strange campaign for Lombardo specifically because he ran a campaign that was theoretically more Republican agnostic than Laxalt's was because Laxalt was so tied to Trump. Laxalt was Trump's co-campaign chair, I should say, in 2020. He was on the front stage of all of the election denial that year. And, and Laxalt has really cast himself in the mold of the Trump Republican, the Trump Republican Party. And so Laxalt could not run away from that in a way that Lombardo sometimes did and sometimes didn't. And so he was sort of all things to all voters. If you were dissatisfied with Governor Sisolak, then Lombardo created an opportunity that maybe Laxalt didn't present. I think that's very, very insightful by Jacob. Character matters a lot in campaigns. They were very different candidates. Whatever else I can say about Adam Laxalt, I think he's a terrible candidate in many ways. But but he is at least experienced. Joe Lombardo was totally inexperienced in this kind of race. It was in his wheelhouse to run for sheriff, right? He was a cop his entire life. He could run for sheriff. But he knew very little about state government. And, and he had to have stuff cleaned up occasionally by his campaign, his abortion positions. He must have had 47 positions on abortion dur during the campaign. I really think what's underestimated and what probably will come out is that they were as data driven in that campaign as the Democrats were. And they competed with them at that level in terms of knowing where to go for the votes. And it's clear to me that Laxalt's campaign, they ran purely a base campaign. If we turn out the Republicans, we'll be fine. Let's not worry about the middle or the Democrats. And that, you know, again, there's so many things when a race is close that cost you, but that certainly was not a smart strategy. Dean Heller was totally flip-flopped in 2018 on healthcare here in Nevada, and it totally bit him in the butt. It did not work for him. So why did it work for, for Lombardo? I mean, like you said, he was flip-flopping on abortion. He was flip-flopping on the Trump endorsement. It, it seems like it was, it was more prevalent in his campaign than it was when Heller really struggled with that. Uh, it goes back to what I said earlier, and it seems like a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. Campaigns matter. Candidates matter. But I think... The well, reason it didn't hurt Lombardo as much, Joey, is that I don't think you can overestimate the kind of ill will that Sisolak generated out there because of his COVID decisions, fairly or not, that it was out there. And it didn't matter. Joe, Joe Lombardo, they were going to stick with him because they hated Sisolak so badly. And so I think that's why it didn't hurt him as much. Who cares if he flip-flops on abortion or Trump? He's not Sisolak. I also think that there's some like really minor marginal things at play here. So for instance, Catherine Cortez Masto actually outperformed Joe Biden in a bunch of rural counties. And so you have to look at sort of why does Laxalt underperform Trump in these places? And, and did that happen to Lombardo? And the answer is no. Lombardo sort of did well universally among Republicans in the state and in ways that Laxalt did not. And there were multiple rural Republicans who said, we're not going to back Adam Laxalt, we're going to back Cortez Masto. And they would always cite something really specific. People in Fallon would point to her defending, you know, a naval air station Fallon. She, said that she saved that, so we're going to back Cortez Masto. People in Ely talk about the way that she gets money for mines or blocks mining taxes, or, you know, the tribes out there talk about the way that she's responsive. She picks up the phone, right? Everyone has this one individual thing that Cortez Masto 
I did. I talked to one woman who like hated Joe Biden, but she's voting for Cortez Masto out in, in Lander County. And she said it was because she like respected hunting and sportsmen out there. And, and so everyone's got this sort of story and all of them universally, people who back Cortez Masto out there will bring up that Laxalt, despite being a Laxalt, is not from Nevada. He's from Virginia. And that sort of history and the sort of personal history, we right, 14 members of his family didn't endorse him. They endorsed Cortez Masto. And that struggle that just pops up every time Laxalt runs for one of these statewide races, people who are from Nevada pay attention to that kind of thing. And all of that wouldn't have made that much of a difference if it weren't for the place that you're sitting right now, Joey, which is Washoe County. Catherine Cortez Masto is going to end up winning Washoe County by probably about the margin that she is going to win the race. Five or 6,000 votes, I think she's going to end up winning Washoe County, which means Clark County and the rurals cancel each other out, essentially, and Washoe County is, is the margin. And uh, Adam Laxalt lost Washoe County when he ran for governor, and he's lost it again when he went, runs for the U.S. Senate. That is really striking to me. And here we have some more voters. The first is Jackie. She only wanted to give me her first name. She's a financial advisor, and I talked to her when it was dumping snow outside of the downtown Reno library. It went super. Yeah. It's really nice in the library. I like to wait until the very day because you just never know what might happen. Somebody might have a heart attack or a stroke. I think it's your most educated. So who'd you vote for? What was your big issues and stuff? Well, I voted for many things. Primarily was party. Yeah. Yeah. What party? Republican. Yeah. I voted for a couple of libertarians. I also did some nonpartisan because, well, that was the only choice. Sure, right. Yes. How did you feel about the ballot questions? I mean, you know, um, I... I particularly was put off by number three. Mm -hmm. The purpose for a primary is for a party to decide its candidate, not all parties deciding what the candidate would be of a single. Kind of defeats the purpose. So the number three one, I didn't like that at all. I I just didn't think it needed to be on the ballot. It's just so self-explanatory. But there's plenty of people that think that you know, everyone should vote in everybody else's primary. It deteriorates the whole party platform, yeah. if that were the case. Yeah. Are you happy to see all the people here today? It's a long line. It was really refreshing. I've been to a great many midterms where there literally was next to no turnout. And so um, regardless of the angst that the election has drawn up, I think that um, that people coming out and representing themselves is a very good thing. And it certainly reflects that no, democracy is not dead. And nor will it die today, as evidenced by the gajillion people that are showing up. And here is Alea, who I also talked to right outside of the downtown Reno library. I kind of last minute checked around with some friends to see like what their thoughts were. I read through the booklet. I filled out the sample ballot. And then that way, like, I could come and just be prepared. Do you, um, do you want to talk about how you voted, or? I'm a Democrat. Yeah. And did you vote mostly Democrat all the way down, or? For the most part, yeah. 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 <laughs> what about for um, the ballot questions? Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the ballot questions? Very interesting. You know, they're always so convoluted. There's so many different parts going on. And, like, people are divided based on, like, how they grew up, based on where they're at in life. The one that really gave me pause was probably the third one. And to be honest, I don't actually know if I made the right choice. 
but I made a choice. What, what was the Can you tell me your choice? Um, I voted for yes. Okay. Because I'm thinking about the future generations, and I'm thinking about how with future generations, things are kind of becoming non-binary in a lot of different ways, in, in ways that people relate to themselves, to each other, and the world. And we've been doing the you know bipartisan voting system or structure for such a long time that at some point this this may get mangled you know in the very beginning but I feel like the next generations have a better chance or opportunity to kind of understand how to make sense of some type of structure that's not just the two parties and it might get totally mangled like I said you know but at the same time like we know that the way that it is currently hasn't been working. I mean, we all know the system's rigged, but. but yeah, it, it feels, does it feel good to vote even though you feel like the system's rigged? It does. <laughs> I think that there's really a big importance behind solidarity. Um, and even if the numbers show up strangely or people who are nihilistic about it um, think that their voice doesn't really matter towards change, I think that even just like being a part of a movement lends a lot of good energy to that movement. So I wanted to also talk about down-ballot races, and we're going to get to the legislature in a little bit, but also just generally, what did down-ballot races look like? The other, you know, constitutional offices besides governor are essentially considered down-ballot races, and, you know, they were split. And I think, but I think, again, people sometimes forget that the internal dynamics of races can can affect it. The, The lieutenant governor was appointed and had a very difficult primary that she actually won by a fairly substantial margin. But then, essentially, it seemed to me, was cut adrift by the party. And Stavros Anthony, who who has essentially become a perennial candidate, benefited from the fact that it was uh, a Republican year uh, to some extent. And in in and Joe Lombardo pulled him over the finish line. But on the other races, I mean, controller we can talk about, but Ellen Spiegel was this kind of the same story. She was pushed out of the Secretary of State's race by the Democratic establishment, and then essentially set adrift to run for an office nobody knows about. And Andy Matthews won that because he ran a good campaign and raised a decent amount of money, got some attention on himself. The other three, Joey, which are more important offices, as we've already talked about, AG, Secretary of State and Treasurer, you had good Democratic candidates in there and really, really flawed Republican candidates, two of whom came relatively close. And it's funny or ironic that the Attorney General, Aaron Ford, is by far the most vulnerable of any of those incumbents on the ballot. He barely won four years ago, and yet he benefited from having Seagal Chatter running against him, who was just an absolutely horrifically bad candidate who said stuff that really got her in in, in trouble. And so I I know it's repetitive, but candidates matter in these races still, especially when when they're apparently close. And I do want to mention real quick that the money matters too in those down-ballot races, especially in the Secretary of State. People have made a lot of the fact that Jim Marchant was an election denier, but I, I don't think it should be overlooked that he raised almost no money 
had almost no ad presence. His campaign was functionally limited to posting tweets. And versus Cisco Aguilar, who had the Democratic establishment behind him, was spending historic amounts of money on ads for a Secretary of State race. Like it was unheard of to see this kind of, of race being run in Nevada. So, so that Marchant, I think, got as many votes as he did w without effectively running a campaign is probably one of the more salient points of this election. We also wanted to bring you the perspective from the poll workers. We heard from one poll manager at the beginning, but here's a bit of a longer chat that I had with Alan Cruitt, who's a 72-year-old EMT, and also was the poll manager at the Reno Town Mall. So, so you've had a really busy today. It's been like this the whole day. And it's like, it's, a, it's like, what, like an hour long line? Right now, yeah. we're guessing about a minute a person. So when you count 60 people, that's an hour. So, but have things gone pretty smoothly other than the wait? Like it's been great. Good. These people have been absolutely wonderful. Yeah. It's been very easy going. It's just constant. Yeah. So my workers, my poll workers, fortunately, they're all cross-trained. We're all cross-trained, so we can give them breaks. I can fill in for them, but if I do, my main job is to deal with exceptions. And we've had a few. Um, I've seen a lot of people have had questions, and it seems like you're really like, pretty easy to answer most of the questions. Yeah, not a problem. I've been doing this since uh, 2004. Okay, so yeah, you've been doing this a long time. So how does this election feel compared to other ones? On general day, it's been extremely easygoing. Okay. During the early, we had a lot of very contentious, very... A lot of people who swore they had information sources, that the voting machines were corrupt, that the mail-in process was corrupt. We were dealing with a lot of weirdness. All right, well, we, we could talk for hours, you guys, about everything, but I have one more question before we wrap up, which is obviously the election is over now, so what's next? The legislature, <laughs> the 2023 Legislative session is coming up in February. Jacob, you are going to be headed up here to Northern Nevada to help cover that. What is the makeup of the legislature? What are you expecting to see out of this session coming up? Well, I, I envy Jacob. The dynamics are absolutely fascinating. You're going to have divided government again with a Republican governor who has probably no idea what it really entails. I remember talking to Steve Sislak when he first got there. He didn't have any real experience either. And he, he was watching the legislature in his office saying, I don't understand what they're doing, John. How can they How can they do this kind of thing? And so Lombardo, it's be interesting to see who he puts around him. He's going to need a really uh, legislative savvy chief of staff and lobbying team over there. And then you're going to have Democrats with significant advantages in both houses. And what are they going to do with those advantages? Are they just going to do a performance art where they send bills over to appeal to their base that, that Lombardo will then veto? Are they going to talk and are they going to be able to pass meaningful kinds of legislation? Is Lombardo just going to try to appease his base as well? All, all of these questions are just going to be fascinating to watch. There's going to be a lot happening behind the scenes. And I think that we have a great team covering the legislature. Yes. And I can already tell we're going to have the time of our lives because at his press conference today, Joe Lombardo committed to saying that his administration would expand school choice and eliminate soft on crime laws. We'll be very excited to see how he gets a, a Democratic legislature on board with those two policy priorities. All right, you guys. Well, thank you both so much for being on the podcast. I uh, really appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show was produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.